Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the world transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At the world transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Wednesday. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm great. Excited about the show tonight. We got a big one. We got a we got an amazing Wednesday show, and we've got an amazing guest, so I'm just going to bring him right out. Our guest this evening is Jay Storrs Hall, Josh Hall. He's an independent scientist and author. He is the author of Beyond AI, Creating the Conscience of the Machine, which was published by Prometheus Books. And this book details the possibly imminent development of strong AI and the desirability, if and when that happens, that such AIs be equipped with a moral sense and conscience. He's also the author of Nano Future which was also published by Prometheus, dealing with real nanotechnology, that is the, the, the real molecular machines, not the, the term being used to describe films and powders and other nostrums. Josh was the founding chief scientist of Nanorex, Inc., and then later served on the company's scientific advisory board. He's also been a research fellow of the Institute for Molecular Manufacturing. His research interests include molecular nanotechnology and the design of useful macroscopic machines using the capabilities of molecular manufacturing. His background is in computer science, particularly parallel processor architectures, artificial intelligence, particularly agoric and genetic algorithms as used in design, and reversible computing. He was the founder and moderator of the SciDot Nanotech News Group for a decade, and he's known as the originator of the utility fog concept. Josh is a proponent of replacing roads and internal combustion vehicles with flying cars. They are some of the milder innovations that he believes nanotechnology could not only make possible, but economical and safe. And another interest is space travel. Most recently, Josh has been working on a book about flying cars and is working on getting his pilot's license. And of course, he's also a contributor to our book, Visions for a World Transformed. Josh, welcome to the World Transformed. Well, thank you very much. I should correct that slightly. I have my pilot's license. Oh, has his pilot's license. Well, that's you know before the show we were talking about all these flights you're taking, so I I was going to have to call you on that. Um, you know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what are you doing taking all these flights when you don't have the license yet? Okay, good to know. You have your you have your you have your pilot's license, and how's that going? How are you enjoying that? Oh, it's a lot of fun. Actually, I uh, I bought the airplane first, and then I said, ooh, now I have to do it. So. Uh, then I got the <laughs> that's a good way to build yeah, an skin in the game at that yeah. point. You know. Yeah. So, so what's the what's the longest trip you've taken so far? Big, weirdest trip or longest uh, or most trip, interesting? Well, yeah, actually, uh, the longest trip I've taken is is about two and a half hours from here to Pennsylvania um, to see the uh, Little League World Series. Well, that's cool. <laughs> that is cool. See things you couldn't do if you didn't have a plane. Right. All right. Well, Josh, we got a lot we want to get into tonight. I, I think. Tonight we're going to focus on what you wrote for our book, and uh, we're going to invite you back for our Friday show, and we're going to get into some, some of the other areas we talked about in your intro, talk about nanotechnology and AI and maybe even a little flying cars. But uh, let me just start with a snippet from what you wrote for us. You wrote, it should be clear what we need. We need to get back on the Henry Adams curve to restart the motor of civilization, 
to reignite the spirit of optimism that we lost in the 70s. We need the average working man to work three hours a day, three days a week, own a flying car, have a robot made, and make a million bucks a year, like George Judson. Okay, so, Stephen, you on board? Man, that's that's the life I want. Uh, now, obviously, there, there's the life we have right now and, and, and that life, and there's a great gulf between it. So uh, how do we bridge that? Yeah, what is this Henry Adams curve of which you speak? Well, the, the Henry Adams curve, as I call it, is essentially just the uh, amount of energy that uh, our society has had at its disposal since uh, 1700, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and it's composed of roughly three equal parts. First, uh, and, and Henry Adams himself, by the way, was the uh, grandson of uh, John Adams. Um, and so he was a, an American statesman and man of letters, and uh, uh, he wrote a fairly famous autobiography around 1900 in which he described this uh, amazing increase in, in energy. Um, and so I named the curve after him. But the curve is basically just how much energy we've been using. And it consists of about 2% actual increase in energy uh, per person, uh, 2% increase in people, and 2% increase in efficiency. And so the amount of energy available to civilization as a whole has been going up at 6 or 7% over the entire Industrial Revolution period until the founding of the Department of Energy in 1970s, <laughs> and then it flatlined. Now, is there a connection between founding a government agency around something and, and exponential progress ending, or is it just a coincidence? Uh, well, I think I will leave that to the interested reader, um, but uh, depending on, on, on what you think, uh, the, I, I, I believe that there's some connection, but that uh, there's also a, an extent to which both of those things are due to external causes that cause both of them to happen. Uh, I, I like the old uh, quote, uh, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help, right? Uh, so that's the scariest words. Uh, well, so the, perhaps the basic thing about the Department of <laughs> Energy biz is, is that, um, uh, you know, whatever they did, they didn't help. Yeah. They didn't actually, yeah. they, they, they uh, let the... Um, the historical trend line that had gone on for 250 years and things had just been getting better and better and better, um, let it fall on the ground. Um, the, uh, the, the whole basic point of my book um, and the, the little chapter that I, I wrote for you guys is, is largely taken from some of the exposition in, in my forthcoming book um, is that the people in the 1960s, including the Jetsons, and you, know, you very, very nicely described uh, the kind of life George Jetson had. He was a cartoon, but um, the people in 1962 had just seen an enormous improvement in the circumstances of life of the average person. And right. Uh, George Jesson was, was supposed to be just an average guy. You know, he worked at a manufacturing plant making spacely sprockets, and uh, uh, he ran an indexing machine, whatever that is. Right. But, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't actually have to do a lot. Now, of course, this is part of the cartoon. It was supposed to be uh, um, silly, and, and you shouldn't really take that as a description of life in 2062, which is when it's nominally set, any more than you'd, 
used the Flintstones as a description of what life was like in the, in the Paleolithic, <laughs> but it's right. a lot closer. Um, so anyway, so, um, in, in the show, George, you know, works uh, three hours a day, three days a week, and if you look at uh, the sort of things that he's able to afford and, and, and just uh, at the same time do a uh, prediction along the trend line of the, the likely productivity of uh, skilled labor and manufacturing in 2062, he'll make a million dollars a year. Um, and so the, uh, that, that was actually a lot closer to what you might consider a realistic prediction than it sounds. Right, right. That's, that's a million $1,962 a year he's making in 2062. Is that right? Um, no, it's, it's closer to a million current dollars. No, oh, okay, okay, gotcha. All right. So, uh, but yeah, but the, but but the point is, um, we we seem. I, I don't. You know, are we on track for that? What do you think? Um, possibly not. If not, maybe it's because we've flatlined on the energy. I guess that's that's your point. That's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, the uh, there are a number of things that went. Uh, that flatlined in in, uh, in the 70s and 80s and so forth. Um, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, if you get into an airliner today, it doesn't fly any faster than the ones in the 60s. Right. Uh, previous to then, um, over the pa- over the previous 50 years, they had seen a full order of magnitude increase in the speed and in the range and in the carrying capacity of airliners. Okay? Well, even, um, even uh, except for you know, things like maybe the Dreamliner and a, and a few other things, most of the planes that we fly around in were designed in the 1960s or earlier sometimes. Uh, they, well, in, in uh, many cases, they're, they're upgraded versions of the, of the same yeah. plane. But the, avionics, the avionics are, are much different, but yeah. uh, the, the aircraft itself is much the same, isn't it? Right, yeah, we're still flying in uh, 747s, which came out in, I think, 68 for example. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, you know, just, we're flying not only planes like those, but the same actual airplanes in many cases. Um, the uh, amount of work that you had to do to run a household. I mean, the, the flip side of George Jetson is, is Jane, who um, gets, uh, gets all the housework done by pressing three buttons. Right. And all the little machines come out, and they, they, they do the laundry, and they do the uh, sweeping and the ironing and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and, she's, uh, and she, she presses buttons and on the thing they call the food aracocycle cycle to, to make breakfast and lunch for you know, her uh, family. Um, and uh, you know, she's, so, she's so tired after all this work that she has to get a robot made, which is a right. robot. <laughs> well, exhausting she's got three buttons to push absolutely well well it turns out that i mean this is the cartoon part of it and 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 it's always fun just to go back and watch it but um so rosie comes out and sets the table rosie doesn't even set the table rosie punches a button (laughs) 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 they're they're intending for this all to be uh, a fun and takeoff and so forth but uh um the interesting thing about all this is that one of the things I did was to go back and collect a whole bunch of predictions by people that I considered 
you know, reasonably knowledgeable about such things, including um, some science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov and Heinlein and uh, um, Arthur C. Clarke, who is uh, known for writing a, um, uh, a major book of futurism that came out in 1962 called uh, um, Profiles of the Future. And, uh, and, and some other futurists and, you know, popular mechanics and all this other, you know, the, the sort of people who were talking about that kind of thing. Right. And then I, um, for each one of the predictions, I uh, plotted on a graph the uh, percentage by which I thought it had come true. You know, so, so if, it, if what we have is just about what they expect, it was 100%. And in right. some cases, like uh, the smartphones that we have, it was much more than 100%. Um, and in the case of other things, like colonies on the moon, it was much less than 100%. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> significantly under, yeah. yes. And then the other, the other axis was um, energy use. I mean, how, how energy intensive the, uh, the technology would be if you actually were going to put it into... Um, into use, and so I expected to get a scatter plot um, that you know more or less filled up the, the graph with the results of this is this got done and that didn't get done, and this used more energy and so forth. You're thinking he would have been about as right as often as he was wrong. That most it would just be kind of an even distribution of predictions. Well, I or? expected. I mean, it was it was just for fun to begin with. Yeah. Um, but I expected there to be some correlation. Okay. Right. But I was flabbergasted because when I actually did the graph, it was as if somebody had taken a knife and just completely sliced it right down the main axis, and there was nothing in the half that were um, uh, high uh, uh, come trueness, <laughs> whatever the word you want to use, um, and high energy. I mean, the, the, uh, the realized high energy uh, half of the graph was just completely empty. So How about somebody the, took my scatter yeah. plot and just cut it in half with a knife throughout. So I, that was that was a lot stronger evidence than I expected from that. Um, now it, it, the fact is, of course, it was it was all to some extent um, subjective numbers on both sides. But like I said, I didn't expect it to come out the way it did. So right. I learned something from that exercise. So if you look at if you look at what's costing us the future, the future we thought we were going to have, for those who like to bemoan these things, it sounds like at least part of it is we just don't have the juice, right? We 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 did we we, we didn't carry right. on growing our our energy levels to to support that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, what has happened is that in the um, before the '60s, uh, actually even in the '60s. Um, because we had the you know space program and all that sort of stuff and uh, so forth, but we had um, a lot of energy, a lot of uh, manpower, a lot of brain power, a lot of expertise uh, were all spent producing more energy. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what happened in the 70s was that there was a sort of phase change in society as a whole, really, but. All of a sudden, everybody got um, worried about Earth Day and uh, uh, the environment and all this sort of stuff. And anything having to do with energy, period, 
it didn't matter whether it was, you know, clean or dirty. It didn't matter um, what uh, the costs were in terms of, you know, people, people die from not having enough energy, uh, especially in cold countries. Um, the, no matter what it was, energy was just conceived as this, this horrible original sin, and everybody hated all the oil companies and anything an oil company did was, was, was just uh, um, considered evil uh, a priori. So right. anyway, um, all of the expertise, all of the uh, energy, all of the ingenuity, all the work that used to go into producing more energy went into making things more efficient. And uh, it turns out that we have some really efficient stuff now. Uh, but the, the fact is that we, instead of uh, doing new stuff, the sort of things that we expected to have in the future, including flying cars, um, what we got was the same old stuff that we used to do, only more efficiently. And, right. Um, so there's been this, this enormous brain drain, uh, a sink of uh, people's efforts and ingenuity and resources and what have you, um, all in the direction of trying to save energy as opposed to producing more of it. And that's the actual phenomenon that has uh, cut us off from a lot of the, uh, the things that we thought we were going to get. Well, it was kind of a one-two punch of retreating from nuclear energy as well as uh, OPEC and um, the energy crisis of the early 70s uh, as well, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I have a couple of graphs that I can describe for you, um, but basically they look the same. There, there's, a, there's a nice increasing um, curve that goes up into the 70s, and then all of a sudden the thing, not flat lines, it dies. It goes all the way back down to zero and, uh, and continues from there with, with little wiggles. And those two graphs that look so much the same are, first, PhDs in nuclear physics, hmm. and second, private airplanes oh, wow, in the United States. Um, yeah. And you cannot actually say that they're really both caused by the same thing, but... In a in a very vague sort of sense, the 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 change in the culture uh, contributed to both of them, and 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 probably uh, not just hating energy per se, but um, an over uh, concern with safety. Seem to be too too. Uh two things that kind of plague us where, where progress is concerned. I don't know, plague, but slow us down. They put, they, they put the brakes on where, where progress is concerned. You know, we talk a lot about this idea of ephemeralization, the uh, R. Buckminster Fuller idea of doing more and more with less and less until eventually you do everything with nothing. We talk about, you know, for example, what an amazingly efficient device the smartphone is compared to how we would have accomplished the same things a generation earlier. You know, some things you just couldn't do at all that a smartphone right. can do, and some of them were, you know, the camera and the the recorder and the, you know, the music studio and, and all these different things. You start looking at this room full of equipment that you're now carrying around in your pocket. So that's a lot more energy efficient, and it wasn't people working on 
efficiency per se, right? It was just kind of this other arc we went on, which was digitizing everything, which kind of gives us a much bigger bang for our buck out of power. But I guess what we, what, so, so the future we did get, we got thanks to that, right? We did get some future at least uh, because, of, because of things going digital, but it doesn't give you everything. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the, the, the whole future we were looking for, does it? Well, it gives you the bottom left half of the graph. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, well, the interesting thing, though, about, about that uh, improvement in electronics and computation and communication and, and, and so forth that we did get, um, one of those predictions that I was talking about was Isaac Asimov, who's known a lot for his robot stories and that sort of stuff, made a prediction about what robots would be like, and he made the prediction in 1964 for 50 years ahead, which was, you know, 2014. Um, And he nailed it. It got it exactly right, as close as you could come to a a kind of a vague verbal statement of what they were going to be like. Um, So by that uh, means, at least, you can say that he actually understood the... uh, the essence of progress in um, robotics and computation and all the other stuff that would go into making humanoid robots. Um, so they weren't they weren't completely clueless about this stuff. Right. Um, when, but robotics is a is a um, actually it turns out it's a um, a technology that's right on the edge of the cut. Um, it's it's 100 percent, and it's um, right at the level of uh, energy use that we actually still have. Right. Which which flatlined at about 10 kilowatts. Now that means 10 kilowatts per person, which means uh, you know 10 kilowatts kilowatt hours per hour per person, uh, which means you know you can you can string it out and do all the arithmetic and so forth. But um, an easy way of talking about how much energy use. Um, a, a society has is just kilowatts per capita, and we're at 10. And if the Henry Adams curve had continued uh, the way it had done for the previous 250 years, we would be at about 25. Okay, so let's let's go there because we're going to run out of time, and we want to get to the good side of the story, which is how how we get back on. And there's a wonderful table in the in the uh, chapter that you wrote describing how you get how much how much energy you get from different sources and how much it costs to pay for it to fly uh, an airplane from new york to sydney and uh, we go through the list of you know beginning with beginning with things like uh, jet fuel which it costs a bundle right a couple hundred grand i believe to 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 fly the jet down through things like heavy water and then finally you get to like just plain tap water and you can fly that jet to uh, sydney from new york for Way under a dollar, right? Way under a penny. Yeah, easy fractions of nothing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the thing is that that, um, the further down that list you go, the harder it is to actually get the energy out. Right. Uh, But it's there. Um, So the the trick is to um, improve our understanding and our technology to the point that we can get it out. I mean, uh, uh, 100 years ago, we had no clue how to get any energy out of uranium at all. Um, 200 years ago, we had basically no clue about how to um, get energy out of gasoline. Right. Um, and yet, everybody thinks, oh, gasoline, you know, we're going to run out of it. No, 
the thing is, what we, what we have run out of in the modern world is the ingenuity of people showing us how to get energy out of, you know, the vast ocean of energy that, that lives out there in the, in the universe. Um, I think another line that I did put in that uh, chapter was to uh, a very close approximation, all of the matter we can see in the universe is part of fusion reactors. Right. Uh, so that there, there's energy galore out there. We just have to actually um, get off our duffs and, and go get it. Well, when you when you talk about if if we could just if we could just tap into the power of the sun, you talk about the Kardashev scale, and it's just ridiculous how much power is available. But then you take it one step further, and you say, oh, or we just start producing the fusion ourselves, and it and and it's uh, you know it, it seems like if we could get fusion going, the path to you know being up on, to twenty five on your scale there would not be that hard, right? We could we we ought to be able to be there in a few in a few decades. So what's holding us back? What do we need to do? Well, I, it, what I would do right now, given the uh, realities as, as they exist, would be to start working on in nanotechnology. I, hmm. I mean, I, I have this notion that I've come to call the second atomic age. The first atomic age kind of died in its cradle. Um, you know, some people would say it was strangled. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it didn't have anywhere near the promise that, that people at the time thought it was. And uh, so... What we need to do is to work out the background of the technology that we're going to use to revitalize that in a way that um, makes it usable, not to mention safe, not to mention cheap for everybody. So um, there are lots of ways that a mature nanotechnology makes uh, nuclear power fairly simple. Um, uh, it's, uh, first off is that one of the hard things to do in current technology is isotopic separation. So uh, with nanotech, you know, you're handling atoms one at a time anyway. It's fairly easy to do that. And furthermore, uh, nanotech has the processing power, if you will, to be able to do that to vast amounts of stuff as opposed to the tiny amounts uh, processed at extremely high cost in, uh, in, in current machines uh, for isotopic separation, which means that, you know, if, if you have low-level nuclear waste where something has just been exposed to a neutron source, and um, it's, uh, as the editors of the register put it in, in, a, uh, in editorial a couple of years ago, if you throw a completely legal... Um, uh, luminous-style watch into a barrel full of trash, it's suddenly uh, legally nuclear waste <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and has to be you know, handled with, with kid gloves and shipped off, shipped off to Nevada and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, well, uh, you know, basically half the problem is <coughs> excuse me, that we have regulators who are just completely pusillanimous and uh, um, uh, completely divorced from reality. Um, I'll give you an example. The, uh, the NRC, uh, on their website, admits that um, the, uh, the requirement they have for uh, amount of radiation exposure is 100 times lower than the lowest 
uh, amount of radiation that has ever been shown to cause even a, a slight increase in your, in your chance of getting cancer. Right. So it's like saying that some people have been killed driving 100 miles an hour. We'll set the speed limit at one. Right, right. Okay, so this is, this is half the problem. The other half is simply that um, there's lots of things that you would actually like to be able to do, um, and you'd like to be able to experiment, and you'd like to be able to invent new machines that work better than all our uh, current reactor designs, which date from the 60s. Um, and, I mean, imagine we were still using computers whose designs dated from the 60s. It's insane. So, right. Uh, the, what we need is a, is a resurgence in, uh, in the technology and in people inventing things. And uh, that's what could happen with nanotech because a lot of the things that people worry about, nanotech would just simply easily take care of. Well, that's going to do it for part one of our interview with JSTORS Hall. Please join us on Friday for the conclusion of the interview. Plus, of course, it's Friday. We'll be doing Other Geek as well. Look forward to being with you all then. And until next time, live to see it.